is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Uh, you can find it on page 6 of your bulletin if you'd like to read along. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the tradition just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman, woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have her ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is the man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it, is it her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. feel spontaneously moved to look at a different passage this morning. Um, we are moving through the book of 1 Corinthians, taking it bit by bit, just taking it right through from the beginning through to the end of the letter, and we've got a few more weeks, so today we're looking at chapter 11, or at least the first half of chapter 11, and congratulations, uh, we have officially landed on what might be the hardest passage in all of 1 Corinthians, and this is why I need a sabbatical, y'all, um, and by calling it one of the hardest passages, I don't only mean that the topic of gender is one of the most uh, it's a topic that provokes strong opinions and strong emotions. It's not only that, but I also mean that it's a passage that actually poses a lot of translational and interpretational difficulties. And even for the most diligent Bible readers and scholars over the centuries. In fact, one scholar uh, wrote about this section of 1 Corinthians and, and, and said this, it jumps off the page as a spectacular curveball, even in a letter already full of pastorally tricky questions and detailed responses. Well, so let's take a swing at that spectacular curveball together. But we're going to need to pray. So let's pause and pray together. Lord Jesus, we're asking uh, for you to help us. Truth is... We don't need your help today any more than we always do. 
we always need your help. We are always prone to wanting to think the things that we want to think rather than thinking our thoughts after your thoughts. Uh, we are always prone to just wanting our egos to be stroked or our priors to be confirmed. Uh, we are always uh, resistant in a way that really harms our own souls because you want to give us life. That's why you gave us these words. You want to give us hope and you want to give us joy. You want to give us Jesus. And even in times when it's hard to see how that might come about, we know that's your promise. And so we pray that you would do that. So we're offering ourselves up to you with as much wholehearted surrender as we can muster up by the power of your spirit, asking you to speak to us because your servants are listening. So please come, send your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to take a little different approach this time, a little bit more of a, a pure teaching uh, kind of take on this passage, uh, just to work through some of the details and to put a lot of the data right on the table for us to work through together. I think what we find from the outset, as you maybe even heard this passage read, are at least six questions that come up when trying to understand the basic meaning of this passage. At least, probably many more, but at least six basic questions. Number one, what real-life situation was Paul addressing in this section of his letter? Number two, what was the significance of these head coverings in ancient Corinthian cultures? Head, what was that all about, these coverings? Number three, is this passage relevant uh, to the situation and culture of the Corinthian church alone, or does it apply at all to Christians and churches elsewhere, including ours and including us? Number four, is Paul addressing men and women or husbands and wives? Number five, what is the meaning of head throughout this passage? Number six, how does the surrounding context the wider flow of Paul's letter help us to understand chapter 11. Let me run through those six questions and hopefully it'll help us to navigate some of the tougher issues that we find in this passage. So question number one was this. What real life situation was Paul, the apostle, addressing in this section of his letter to the Corinthian church in ancient Greece? The gospel of grace that Paul had taught and instructed the Corinthian Christians, in fact, had redefined gender roles and relationships in their church. In verses 4 and 5, we're told that not only men, but also women were publicly praying and prophesying. That latter word meaning teaching, encouraging, exhorting the church in a public fashion in the course of a worship service. This was a big change in the life of the church. It actually ran counter to the culture and the way that women would have been treated in Corinthian society. But they believed this. They believed the gospel. They believed Galatians 3.28, which declared, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Men and women were, are, equal in Christ. The Apostle Paul not only doesn't correct, let alone condemn these practices, he actually seeks to affirm them. You see this in verse 2 when he says, I praise you for remembering me in everything 
and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. Men praying and prophesying publicly, women praying and prophesying publicly. Amen. But the Corinthian Christians apparently had begun taking things too far. And the main concern expressed in this passage is that gender equality in the Corinthian church had begun to totally erase all gender distinctions. For some in the church, freedom in Christ was starting to mean freedom from gender itself entirely. And this was seen and expressed particularly through their head coverings. Which brings us to the second question. Question number two, what was the significance of these head coverings, especially in ancient Corinthian or Roman culture? See, the main issue that this passage addresses is that Corinthian men and such were praying and prophesying with their heads covered, and women were praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered, as we see in verses 4 through 7 and verses 13 through 15. It's not perfectly clear, actually, whether the text is referring to some kind of an article of clothing that they would put on or take off their head, like a hood, or some kind of a shawl that would be drawn over their heads, or whether that was a reference to the length of a person's hair. Actually, the Greek ancient text that we have before us simply reads down from the head, uh, referring to something that hung on or off of the head. And so we have some idea that maybe it was a hood, maybe it was a shawl, maybe it was a reference to the hair, and here's what's going on. For the men in Roman culture, men would cover their heads with their togas when they presided over pagan religious ceremonies. It was a common custom. And typically, only the upper class, the upper echelon of society, could serve as religious priests. And so, when Christian men came to worship with their heads covered, they were sort of making a social statement that would have been familiar to all the people. They were making sure that everyone knew that they were part of the social elite of the city. They were honoring themselves rather than honoring Christ. Additionally, Roman culture had a very strong point of view. We have historians that point out text after text that portray this view that men were to wear their hair short. Long hair was considered the possession of women alone, which relates to the issue of head coverings for women. In Roman society, wearing a hood or a thin scarf over one's head, it actually symbolized a woman's virtue. And so not to wear a hood or a scarf actually communicated publicly sexual availability. You were sort of open to relationships. Uh, For married women, therefore, a head covering served as a public sign that I'm married here. And so the modern equivalent might be something like a wedding ring. Apparently, some of the women in the church in Corinth were worshiping, liberated, removing their wedding rings, so to speak. 
Furthermore, in Roman society, women typically wore their hair long, but bound up under their hoods or scarves. So to refuse to wear the scarf and then just to let your hair down was sort of to buck the standard cultural definitions of a respectable woman. And so that's why in verse 6, Paul says that it was sort of the near equivalent of shaving her head entirely, which in that culture was a, a symbol of androgyny or sexlessness. In other words, if you're going to ignore gender customs in society, well, you might as well just go all the way and eliminate symbolized gender completely. And so in summary, if you're following the bits and pieces I'm bringing to you, the issue of head coverings represented this combination of sexual propriety, marital fidelity, and gender dissimilarity. So Paul says in verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head, and a woman ought to cover her head. Question number three, is this passage relevant only to the situation and culture of the Corinthian church, or does it apply to all Christians and churches, including us and ours? Okay, let's just say it. This head covering business is a little weird, right? A little bit hard to figure out how it applies or what to do with it. And someone might conclude, maybe you've already concluded, well, that only applied to a very specific situation in ancient Corinth in the first century, and it has nothing to do with me. But I want you to notice two things that you can find in this passage. First, in verse 16, Paul writes, If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, all the churches practice these same principles. He explicitly tells us that the basic teaching of this passage applies not only to the Corinthian church exclusively, but also to all the churches that he was apostle of. Secondly, Paul doesn't ultimately ground his argument on just the local Corinthian culture. He appeals to it, but there's more to his argument than that. In fact, he grounds it in the doctrine of the Trinity itself. Did you notice that? The Trinity. That's the understanding that God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. And we find this reference in verse 3. The head of Christ is God. Uh, he also grounds his argument in the story of creation, which he alludes to in verses 7 through 12. That's a pointer to the stories of Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. Also the stories of Genesis 2, 18 through 25. In other words, these things are true of all of humanity. These things are true of all churches, of all times and places. And so that means that even though it's hard, it's a hard task, our job is to then identify the, the principles. How do we find the principles underneath these culture-specific situations? And then how do we then apply those underlying principles to our lives today? Question number four, is Paul addressing men and women or husbands and wives? I know at this point I might be drawing your attention to a problem that you might not have even noticed, right? In the ancient Greek language, the word for man is the same word for husband. 
And the word for woman is the same word for wives. And so in the nearly 30 times that these words are used throughout these short 15 verses, the question is, should they be understood as referring to men or husbands or women or wives? And here's the answer. Only context can tell you. You have to kind of see how it's being used and take your best educated guess. And I think in short, Paul appears to be referring to a mix of both. We have to read this passage as applying both to men and women in general and maybe especially to those in marriage. Gender identity and relationships in marriage and in general. And here's one reason why this is important. One reason why we need to understand this from the outset. This text and the New Testament more broadly does not teach that all men have a leadership role over all women. And so verse 3, for example, should be read, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband, not the head of every woman is every man. Well, let's be honest, for some of you, that doesn't help either. So let's tackle question number five. What's the meaning of head throughout this passage? The meaning of head. Well, it's a little confusing because this passage is, of course, talking about literal physical heads, right? But there are a few instances that you might have noticed, like in verse three and possibly verse four, where head is used metaphorically. Scholars have studied this word like bonkers, just so much energy and time that's been poured into understanding the meaning of this word and how it functions in passages like this. Well, the word most naturally carries the meaning authority over or chief, Uh, you know, sort of like how we mean it when we say head honcho, right? Head in that sense. But the word can also mean source or origin, as in the head of a river or a fountainhead. Uh, The difference here is that according to that latter definition, source or origin, Adam could be created first and Eve out of the side of Adam, as we're told in the book of Genesis 2, chapter 2, and as it's alluded to in verses 8 and 9 in this passage, that according to this latter definition, Adam could be created first and then Eve out of the side of Adam, and that that would simply mean that man was the source of the woman without at all implying that as a result of this sequence that he has any kind of leadership or authority over her. So it's not unimportant. It's impo- it, it is possible that Paul employs both senses of the word here. It's possible that he could be drawing from both, as is often the case in the Greek language. But with respect to husbands and wives in marriage, the word seems to carry a sense of authority. Actually, this reading is corroborated by the way that 1 Peter 3 and Titus 2, Colossians 3, and most famously Ephesians chapter 5 also describes the husband's relationship with the wife. Well, you have to understand what kind of authority it is, of course, what kind of leadership that a husband might be called to in the household. It's in the context of a shared equality, a co-equal dignity, and a submission one to the other. It's a kind of authority, actually, that's patterned after the authority of Christ, 
who, of course, laid it all down, died for the sake of love. Just as Christ exercises servant leadership for his people, even to the point of death, husbands are called to exercise servant leadership in the home. And this we can detect from the meaning of the word head. And question number six, finally, what does the surrounding context, the wider flow of Paul's letter, help us understand this chapter, chapter 11? Well, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, several months, you might have picked this up, that since chapter 8, Paul has been repeating a simple message. Love. Love. One of the last verses of the last chapter, chapter 10, said this, No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And more specifically, this wider section of the letter has been making this emphasis that there are times when love should compel you to relinquish your spiritual freedoms and relinquish your spiritual rights in Christ for the benefit of your brothers, your sisters, your neighbors. And so this framework, this broader context helps us to understand something important about this passage. Paul isn't just teaching abstract ideas about gender or marriage. He's teaching us how to honor one another. He's teaching us how to serve one another, how to love one another. That's why he repeatedly says in verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 14, using this language of disgrace and dishonor, he repeatedly calls the Corinthians to have a right mind about their gender and about one another so that you may honor one another. A right handling of gender difference honors yourself the way that you've been created by God. It honors other people and it honors God who has made you in his image. Well, those are just some quick responses. Maybe you're more confused than ever. Quick responses to those six questions. But we've got to start landing this plane pretty soon. We're going to take some questions during our Q&A time. But let me take us to this. When you all weave it all together, when you weave it all together, what do you get? I think we get two principles, and this is what we'll talk about. The first principle is this. Men and women are equal, different, and interdependent. Men and women are equal, different, and interdependent. Let's break this down. Men and women are Equal, made in the image of God. As we're told in verse 7, this allusion to Genesis chapter 1 that tells us that the clearest and greatest representative of the attributes of God is humanity. And specifically, Genesis 1 talks about humanity as It relates to our gender. Male and female, he created humankind in his image. But furthermore, as we talked about before, as the Corinthians had embraced, as Paul affirmed, in Christ they are also equal spiritually because of the gospel. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, for you are all one 
in Christ. Men and women are equal, and yet they are not equivalent. They are different. Men and women are held up in this passage by a complex vision that neither strict egalitarianism nor strict hierarchicalism can really fully grasp or explain. This is a passage that teaches us that our gender, our gender differences are are not just accidental and they're not simply imaginary, in other words, a construct of society. In fact, it's very clear that our genderedness is grounded in our createdness. Again and again, the apostle points us to the story of creation. Your being male and your being female is not something that human beings created, but rather something that God has created. Male and female are created equal in dignity, but different with rich complementarity. And of course, as we look at and think about and talk about gender difference, what needs to be said is that, of course, the gospel will challenge many cultural framings of gender norms. That's, in fact, what the apostle affirmed in what the Corinthians were doing. The gospel is countercultural in every area of life, including the realm of gender. It will challenge gender norms, especially those that are needlessly restrictive or harmful. And so we too then need to, in light of this passage and other places in the Bible, need to be very wary of damaging stereotypes of masculinity or femininity. There's a way in which this passage can call us to a, a deep examination biblically to what may in fact be embedded in our minds and in our communities and in our societies that may not actually be of God. And we need to recognize that the Bible actually has very little to say about definitions of manhood and womanhood. And we need to be careful not to be adding to Scripture. Even recently was a little bit amused and a little bit dismayed upon seeing a uh, new conference that has apparently been organized um, exclusively for men, one of these men's Christian conferences, and it almost looked like a, a parody in the way in which uh, they had basically designed the, the programming for this great event. Uh, this is a Christian, uh, uh, I think a spiritual conference, but it included a large arena stadium uh, chock full of uh, big wheel trucks, uh, uh, machine guns, in fact, um, uh, you know, large, heavy metal sounding guitars, and, 
chest-thumping men, and in fact, there was even a mixed martial arts component to, I have no idea how this fits into the Bible teaching and the singing, I'm not really sure, but it was almost every possible cultural stereotype that you can imagine, uh, which really might be better described as toxic masculinity, which you can't find in the Bible at all. It might not be wrong in and of itself, but it certainly can't be said to be prescriptive of what manhood is all about. We need to take care in the way that we walk with one another, even building relationships and communities in which we practice care and uh, friendship and brotherhood and sisterhood, even walking with those who feel uncomfortable with their biological sex or those who don't feel like they easily fit into the buckets that our world has to offer, that church should be a place that challenges many, many norms. And yet this point about affirming true sexual difference in Scripture also invites us to know that total erasure of gender difference is not biblical either. The Bible doesn't prescribe what cultural norms and values are the right ones. This is part of our job to walk in wisdom and humility and love, giving space for individuality. And yet the Bible does say, and this passage does teach us, to believe that men and women are equal, but they're not equivalent. They are different and yet not subordinate. And so we bring before us this complex vision that also includes this understanding that men and women are independent. In verse 11, Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, because everything comes from God. In other words, it's only when we're together that we actually fully image the glory of God. Uh, We are actually dependent upon one another. Uh, We actually complete the full picture of God one to another. Uh, This is uniquely shown forth in the context of marriage, which is what the apostle is keen in on, but it's certainly also imaged forth in a broader community as well. Uh, Men and women, brothers and sisters, we jointly, together, and in complementary ways, image the radiant glory of God. And in fact, we see and experience less of God if we fail to include and esteem women in our midst. And we actually see less and experience less of God if we fail to include and esteem men. But of course, this idea of difference and interdependence is an idea that makes us nervous. In fact, a lot of the times in common conversation today, we don't even want to acknowledge difference. And that's because so many of these differences have been exploited. And the truth is, most especially by men. Many of us have been wounded. Many of us have been placed in uh, uh, positions of abuse and assault and or even just marginalization, even in Christian communities. 
And even as a repercussion of that, we're confused. We don't exactly know how to relate to one another anymore. In fact, this is even true of the self-image that many men now have developed around their own gender identity. In other words, I think it's important to be able to say to our brothers in Christ that there has been a lot of abuse and oppression of women by men. And that we must own up to this. We must repent of it. We must learn from it. The movements that are ongoing, commonly called Me Too and Church Too and Silence is Not Spiritual, is a good thing. It's a good thing for the church uh, to be thrust into a, a period of reckoning, of honestly assessing how we are relating to one another and whether we're protecting those that are finding themselves in positions of vulnerability, whether we're being honest about injustice and oppression and hurt and abuse and harm. Men, we need to be keen on these things and humble before them, but we also need to know that those failures are not the sum total of your male identity either. And so often in the way that these conversations have gone, it's important for us to remember women and men and each of us, that you are the glory in the image of God. As Paul says in verse 7. These are challenging topics, and yet the call to us as a community is to lean into it and to live in light of these things. Uh, you know, what does it look like briefly? So I want to make sure that we have some time for Q&A. For ourselves individually, embrace your God-given gender identity with all the complexity that that entails, not as a simplistic project, but as one that is actually something that honors yourself and honors the God who has created you and created you good. But it also means building a community where we are honoring one another by recognizing our need for one another, not despite our differences, but precisely because of our differences, where we're becoming a community that fills up in our midst every expression of the gifts that our sisters and our brothers bring to this community, where we are doing everything that we can to fill up positions of leadership as best as the word of God allows us to, where we are cross-discipling one another, where men are shaping women and women are shaping men in the way that we understand the gospel of grace, where we're a community that resists portraying certain roles and jobs in the community as being just for the guys or, or just for the girls, uh, just m male and just female, that we're not approaching, that we're not approaching, in fact, ministry sort of androgynously, but that, in fact, we're looking for ways where we are offering a unique gift as a woman or as a man, expecting that there will be certain differences. Again, not slipping into stereotypes and not even being too concerned about defining exactly what they are, but trusting and believing that as you bring yourself to the table, that you'll be bringing 
the woman that you are or the man that God has created you to be. Of course, there are certain limits to this that we recognize as a church community. As you may know, at Grace Meridian Hill, we don't see the Bible giving us the injunction, the mandate to ordain women to the office of elder and to pastor, which is a topic of a lot of struggle and debate and for many consternation. And uh, we don't have time today to work through that, though I'm happy to ask, uh, address questions related to that. We will touch on it in a couple weeks in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But it's also why we find it to be important, even in light of that limitation, for us to erect a new role, a new leadership role of service called the shepherdess, where we want in every way possible to have women who are gifted in counseling and nurture and discipleship and care with gifts of words and encouragement and prayer to be able to lead not only the women of the church but also the men of the church by blessing us with their gifts, walking under the formal authority but also side by side together with the male elders and the ordained shepherd leadership of this church. I want to invite you all to seek ways in which we can find the fullness of our gendered humanity and our gendered recreated humanity in Christ to find expression here in this church. That's the first principle. And the second principle, the first principle, of course, being that men and women are equal, different, and interdependent. And the second one, which I'll just close with, is that when we honor our, our gender uniqueness, when we honor our gender uniqueness, we honor ourselves, we honor others, and we honor God. And just to point out in closing that Paul points us to the Trinity, I mentioned this before, uh, that the Godhead is the perfect paradigm, the eternal, infinite paradigm picture of what difference and equity looks like, uh, of what sameness and distinction can actually look like in Harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different and yet one. And as Paul even points us to this vision in verse 3, as he says, the head of Christ is God, he invites us to some kind of understanding of what unity and diversity can look like with respect to gender. Where he points us not just to God in Christ, but to this calling to image God in Christ. That as we figure this out together, as we find our place, as we find our complementarity, as we find ways that we can interact and together radiate the glory of God, the full range of attributes of God and his mercy, his truth, his love, his justice, his strength, his meekness, and all these different ways imaged forth in who we are, created in his image, recreated in the image of Christ, that we can say to the world, finally, finally, we are seeing in our midst a picture of the triune God. Which could never be achieved and could never be seen in sameness alone. If we were all gender interchangeable, we would not see the fullness of the glory of God in our midst. And in fact, what we find in that picture of God is also one who with all authority that he had and all equality that he had made himself a servant, always deferring to 
his father. Laying down his life, in fact, laying down his power. Dying upon a cross, though equal with God, Philippians 2 reminds us. And yet, making himself even as a slave. Dying for our sins. This is Jesus, who sought to honor us at our most dishonorable because of all of our sin, because of all of our need. Jesus, who loved us and he calls us to love one another in the same way out of the power of the gospel of Jesus that we would honor those that are other than ourselves, that we would respect and serve, and that in the fullness of that community and those relationships that we would together discover more depths and more riches of the lavish grace of Christ, that we would see in our midst fuller expressions of the glory of God himself. But we can only do that if we can affirm together that we are equal, yet we are different, and we are interdependent. Will you honor one another, brothers and sisters, men and women? Will you honor even yourselves in how God has made you? And in doing so together, can we give due honor to our triune God? Three and one and one and three, different and yet one and the same. All of this is to the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would give us wisdom around these things. Please help us. Give us hearts that sort through what this looks like practically. How do we do this? Uh, but change our hearts and change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.